All right, let's go ahead and get kicked off. My name is Gordon Flake. I'm the CEO of the Perth US Asia Center at the University of Western Australia. Uh, and on behalf of the Perth US Asia Center and our sister center, uh, the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney, uh, it is my great honor to welcome you to this month's installment of our ongoing monthly US politics and policy review. As we kick off this conversation, allow me to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, even if it is only virtually, uh, the, the Noongar people, or the Wajak people of the Noongar nation. We pay our, our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Uh, traditionally, on these monthly conversations, uh, Professor Simon Jackman and I will, will focus understandably on Washington, D.C., where much of U.S. politics and, and, and policy originates. Uh, but this month, we've decided to do a deeper dive on, on the second largest state and, and one of the most important states in the United States when it comes to politics, and that is the state of Texas. Uh, many of you will, of course, be aware of Texas. I don't know anybody that's not. I think you've all seen the maps where foreign concepts of the United States are New York and California and Texas kind of occupying the mi middle. But it's uh, not only the, the second largest state in terms of size, uh, but it's also the second largest state in terms of population. And putting that in an Australian context, uh, Texas has both a larger population and a larger gross domestic product than we do as a nation. Uh, and so it really is something really important for us to understand if we want to understand many of the political trends in Washington, D.C. And indeed, whether you're talking about borders or whether you're talking about vaccines or whether you're talking about immigration or whether you're talking about women's rights or voters voting rights, many of the issues that we talk about on a national level are all issues that find their way through Texas or have key influence coming out of Texas. Today, our conversation is going to be all the richer because we have two on-the-ground practitioners uh, to help us understand politics in Texas and how they might impact not just uh, the United States, but Australia and the rest of the, of the world. Uh, our first honored guest is Professor Valerie Hudson. She's a university distinguished professor at uh, Texas A&M University and the George H.W. Bush Chair as Professor of International Relations. Uh, Valerie has been listed by Foreign Policy as one of the top 100 foreign policy, our most influential global thinkers. Uh, she was the leader and the co-creator of the, the massively influential Women's Stats Database. Her newest co-authored book is The First Political Order, How Sex Shapes Governance and National Security Worldwide, came out last year from Columbia University Press. Uh, Valerie was a Fulbright Distinguished Professor at ANU. Uh, and, and full disclosure, if I seem a little bit nervous and, and, and hesitant today, it's because Valerie was my professor over 30 years ago at Brigham Young University. So yes, it's true. That means that Valerie became a full professor at the age of 13. But anyway, we'll, we'll go beyond that. Uh, <laughs> our, our second guest bridges scholarship and government uh, and, and provides the second on the ground perspective for Texas. Uh, professor Victoria Farrar Myers uh, was elected to the Arlington City Council in 2016 and has served as the deputy mayor pro tempore uh, or pro temper. Uh, you have to tell me about the pronunciation of that, Victoria, uh, since 2018. Prior to entering politics, she spent 16 years at the University of Texas at Arlington, uh, where she was a professor of political science and also served as a Fulbright scholar here in Australia. The end of her Fulbright experience overlapped briefly with the, the creation of the Perth US Asia Center. Uh, and as such, she kindly agreed to serve as our very first ever non-resident uh, research fellow before her entry into politics. And so we couldn't think of two better friends of Australia, friends of, of, uh, of, of the United States Studies Center and the, US Study, uh, the Perth U.S. Asia Center to help us think through uh, the trends on the ground. So Simon, welcome. Uh, Victoria, welcome. Valerie, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Well, we're going to kick off. Simon, if it's okay with you. Uh, I'm going to come back to Simon a lot of these things, and I know that Simon will have plenty of questions as well. But with a leadoff question for each of our, 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 our two guests on, on uh, the, the webinar today, and we'll start out with, with uh, uh, Valerie. Um, given the work that you've done with the Women's Stats Database on women in national security, your work on migration uh, and gender, uh, and in fact, I think you just had an op-ed in the, the, the uh, Council on Foreign Relations on these issues just last month. Could you kind of take those issues that you normally work on internationally and apply a little bit of a Texas prism to them and help us understand those issues uh, from a, te a Texas perspective. 
Oh, I'd be happy to do that. Um, and yes, you were very, very young, weren't you? Just five or six <laughs> when you were in my graduate class at uh, BYU. Just anyway, let me set the context that Texas is kind of a booming state right now. It's uh, certainly growing in its population. It just picked up two new seats in Congress. Uh, you know, it's a uh, it is attracting business right and left. It doesn't have a state income tax. <laughs> uh, so uh, Texas is kind of bustling and booming. In fact, we have a large influx of people coming from other states of the union. And in fact, uh, the, the largest percentage are actually coming from California. 13% of the, uh, the out-of-state uh, migrants to um, uh, uh, Texas are from California. So, but in the midst of all of that, right, we have some interesting problems and challenges along the lines that you've been discussing. Um, in, in terms of what we would consider to be human security, um, we can, you know, look at, at uh, rankings such as Texas is number one in the United States for human trafficking, both as a transit and a destination state. Um, it is number 15 in the country for having the highest crime rate. Uh, and it is number 41 near the very bottom in uh, per pupil educational uh, expenditures. Uh, and uh, our maternal mortality is very high compared to the rest of the country. Uh, and this has a strong um, racial dimension to it. Uh, even though only 11% of births in Texas are to black women, 31% of um, maternal mortality is among the black community. Uh, and so there are some big problems here that you would think that the Texas state legislature would be uh, tackling head on. Uh, now there's a really old joke in Texas um, that uh, it was originally meant that the Texas legislature would meet two days every 140 years. But then we ended up with it meeting 140 days every two years. So something for your listeners to understand is that our legislature only meets for three months every two years. Uh, and that means that its ability to really focus on and handle some of these big problems that we've been talking about uh, are impaired, let's put it that way. And so we end up with some, you know, for instance, if we looked at the most recent legislative uh, session, it wasn't about human trafficking, wasn't about maternal mortality, wasn't even about educational expenditures. What did we manage to accomplish? Well, uh, we made, uh, the, we banned the teaching of critical race theory we now have one of the strictest abortion laws in the country. As soon as a heartbeat can be detected, which is at approximately six weeks, that's the cutoff. You cannot have an abortion past that. Um, our governor banned, uh, got legislation through that banned vaccine passports. We now have permitless carry of uh, weapons in uh, Texas. So you can just go and buy a weapon in Texas and carry that thing openly or concealed without any permit, um, uh, concealed carry permit at all. Uh, our legislature agreed that churches should no longer ever be shut down because of disasters. And it mandated the playing of the national anthem before all uh, sports competitions where any team has any sort of relationship with the Texas government. So while we have huge problems in human trafficking and maternal mortality and education and other human welfare uh, issues, uh, we can't seem to really wrap our arms around that very much in Texas. Well, you've given the axiom that everything is big in Texas. So big opportunities, but also some big challenges as well. I would recall that uh, the city of Perth has a sister city relationship with the city of Houston, you know, both energy rich uh, cities. Uh, and a number of years ago, I had a chance to, to join the Lord Mayor and a, and a sister city delegation. Uh, and the Lord Mayor of Perth was concerned because they had identified 175 homeless people within the, the city limits. And, and they thought they might be able to sit down with Houston and talk about how to address that. And, mm -hmm. and uh, the 
Texas colleagues were just amused by this conversation because they had a, a count of about 10,000 within the city. And even if you factor out the size of populations, they were just very different things. So Victoria, turning to you, <laughs> I know that you were giving a, 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 a rising Lone Star Award uh, for your work on homelessness in particular. But I thought I might ask you a little bit more broad question. Uh, um, there are very different models of governance, and, and Valerie's alluded to some of these between those that you observed in Australia, other states in the United States, and Texas, in terms of levels of taxes, you know, the ability of government to kind of affect things like homeless, et cetera. I wonder if you might, as somebody who sits um, on, a, on a city council in the middle of Texas, give us your perspective on the role of government from a Texas point of view. Well, it's good to be with you again, Gordon, and it's uh, wonderful to, to see my Australian colleagues. Perth always reminds me a little bit of Texas with its um, Wild West feel and its uh, interesting uh, relationship to fracking and other issues that we deal with here in Texas. Let me just say, my colleague, Ms., uh, Professor Hudson, just made it clear why I'm at the local level and why I serve at a city council level, because as she so aptly said, our state legislature doesn't like to handle those big issues, so they get, leave those to the city. And so let me just give a context for, the, for our listeners here. Uh, I serve as Mayor Pro Tem of Arlington, Texas. Arlington, Texas has 400,000 individuals. Um, so I represent 400,000 people. So that's actually almost the size of a congressional district. And so our city is a lot of tourism. Uh, we also sit on top of the Barnett Shale, which is we have fracking in, in our cities. Um, so there's a lot of uh, issues that we deal with. We deal with homelessness. We deal with uh, housing issues. We deal with how do we balance our budget? Unlike our federal government, we have to balance our budget every year. We do have to deal with... Um, when the state legislature abdicates its, its ability to legislate and it says we must do certain things as a city unfunded, we have to find ways to do that. So there's very much, I think, one of the reasons why as a political scientist who used to study foreign policy was very interested in going to the local level is because that is where governing meets the road. And so what I've seen in the last six years of, of a practitioner world is that you know, when we talk about election integrity, that's a big issue here in Texas right now. There's a lot of discussions regarding how can we make sure our elections are safe. And so you know, that big debate that led to a walkout by our Democratic Party on the Republicans um, at the very end of the very last day in the House, um, in the Texas House, I should say. And so now we're going to go into a special session starting July 8th so that we can talk about things like election integrity, like uh, bail reform, bail bond reforms, right? Not even talking about the fact that the census figures will not be released until September, of which will be trigger yet another special session here in Texas for us to deal with not only redistricting by those congressional seats, but redistricting also down to the city level, which I will be a part of here. So it's very interesting uh, when you look at the Australian context with your different product, different areas, Perth being one and others, you know, I was in Adelaide in South Australia. When you look at the differences there, when you think of our differences here, you tend to think of the tech of Texas as being such a wild area of, of, of difference, but we do share very much in common with Australia in a sense that we, we grapple with. As I think the only difference I would say here is we have very much an individual approach, highly individually focused politics here. We're in Australia, it's very communitarian. So while you just said a gasp about homelessness here, you know, to start a conversation in Texas about homelessness and the need for us to take care of those that are on the streets is very much um, difficult to get people's ear. So I think, you know, just to give you a little flavor of the difference between Australia and Texas and then Texas vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the nation. So there are a number of broader issues I want to come back to, but Simon, I want to give you both a chance to, to ask some initial questions of your own, but I want to turn to you first with, with some, for some of your own expertise. Uh, Victoria was talking about uh, the census and the redistricting. You've done a lot of work, obviously, uh, on that particular challenge in the, the 20 years you spent in Stanford trying to understand uh, redistricting in the United States. Can you give us a sense for the, the lay of the land in Texas on those issues? <laughs> I'm sort of uh, feel a little daunted to do so with two two experts uh, who are on the ground, and indeed uh, Victoria, um, as I did my prep for today, Gordon um, uh, Arlington, indeed uh, a really interesting case study that I hope Victoria can talk a little bit more about in a moment. But 
But the big picture um, is that is that Texas is is like a number of U.S. jurisdictions, a state uh, that has partisan control um, of, of redistricting, um, something that in Australia we did away with um, um, a long time ago. Um, um, and Texas, therefore, unsurprisingly, um, with the with the state legislature and the governor being um, Republican. Um, you know, draws lines that tend to, uh, <laughs> um, to put it mildly, tend to advantage um, the ability of Republicans to take, you know, uh, majority support, but, but, but narrowly so um, in, in the 50 to 55% region of late um, to, to take that, uh, that majority and, and get, particularly with the congressional delegation, um, uh, translate that into a, into a disproportionate uh, number of seats in terms of their congressional uh, delegation. Um, that's a process called gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and indeed, the way to make it work to advantage one party out or the other, we, we sometimes call that partisan gerrymandering as opposed to so sort of related, but, but, but different phenomenal racial gerrymandering. But, but, but uh, Texas is a, um, a state that certainly in its congressional uh, delegation uh, is subject to a, to a good deal. Of, of partisan gerrymandering um, in, in a way designed to um, uh, assist Republicans. That's the tip of the iceberg to some extent. Um, and I think as Victoria was just alluding to, um, it's not just redistricting that is subject to partisan control um, when it comes to election administration in the United States. Or um, it, It's right down the line. It's uh, uh, registration, how easy it is to register, how easy it is to stay on the ballot, uh, felon disenfranchisement, um, um, the ease with which when you move within state that your registration follows you around. And then, of course, the big ticket item that has certainly percolated through uh, to the news here in Australia, um, uh, election day procedures and balloting procedures, how easy it is to vote absentee, um, how easy is it to even find uh, the place you're supposed to vote at if you're voting in person on election day uh, and, and, and on down the line. Um, and again, I can't say this enough. Um, um, for Australian listeners, we find this um, awfully odd. We have a system of compulsory voting. <laughs> the government will actually fine you if you don't turn up and vote. And, and um, when the government wants you to do something, they usually make it easy for you to comply. Uh, and of course, as, as everybody, uh, certainly this group will know, um, you know, hence elections in Australia on a Saturday, you can vote anywhere, pretty much. You can show up and um, as you're trying to discharge that obligation, you don't have to go to your precinct. Uh, you can go pretty much anywhere and they'll, they'll help you out. And moreover, it's voting ahead of the election is extremely easy in Australia. Uh, the electoral authorities even set up um, um, uh, mobile polling places in airports if it looks like you're about to go on, on yeah. vacation, on holiday. Um, or, or in the airport, you can vote. Um, um, so so it's, it's an entirely different state of affairs. And why is all this important um, in the context of Texas? For, for two reasons, Gordon, um, that are just for the benefit of Australian listeners. Um, one is how narrowly um, uh, controlled the US House of Representatives in Washington is at the moment, where a lot of analysts are looking at this, this round of redistricting that will take place between uh, the receipt of the, the census data um, that allows the redistricting machinery to, to fire up, but before the 2022 midterms, and given how uh, finely poised, finely balanced the US House of Representatives is right now, you know, redistricting alone may give Republicans what they need before we get to any of the usual sort of hand-wringing about midterm slump for the president's party and, and whatnot in a, in a midterm. Um, and the other thing is just about Texas, Texas itself, where demographic change is taking place and, and some ideological change as well, that, that, that uh, you've got a real disjuncture in Texas between the political and hence, I think, ideological preferences of people that are living in the big uh, urban centers of Texas in, in close to the centers of Houston, uh, Dallas. Um, you've got uh, places like, um, like Austin uh, as well. Uh, versus, you know, exurbia and rural Texas, that, that's, that's, it's quite different. Moreover, you've got the Rio Grande Valley 
um, uh, heavily uh, Spanish-speaking um, Latino population down there. So you've got a lot of different political cultures and sets of preferences being sort of percolating up through Texas politics that have to come and, and be seated in that legislature. Um, and, and, you know, one of the questions I hope we'll get to later is that that demographic change is, as Texas over time becomes um, a, a less white um, part of the United States, the ability to, to keep Republicans in power, um, how much is, is that manipulation, frankly, of everything from the lines on the map to who gets to vote and whatnot, how much of that is that part of a strategy uh, to help sort of offset what are unfavorable demographic trends from the perspective of, um, uh, of the Republican Party, frankly, uh, to what extent um, uh, sort of a thumb or even an elbow on the scale uh, is going to fi figure in, in, in Republicans' efforts uh, to sort of stop Texas joining New Mexico, joining um, Arizona uh, narrowly, uh, joining Nevada, uh, in that, in in being, uh, and and in narrowly uh, Georgia, uh, in in this last cycle as well as a, as a, a formerly deep southern uh, former state of the Confederacy in the case of Georgia, but um, but states with a big um, Spanish speaking population, referring to those other southwestern states. To well, what extent is 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 that is electoral manipulation going to play a role in in trying to hold that 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 change at bay? So let's stick to this broader demographic question first, uh, and then we'll come back to the, the tension between election integrity and, and voters' rights. Uh, but on the dem demographic picture, you know, uh, Valerie, you've written extensively on, on Chinese and other demographics. I'm, I'm curious as to your reaction to you know, the changing nature and face of Texas that Simon uh, mentioned. Obviously, you're currently in Utah right now on a sabbatical. You're familiar with what happened in my home state of Arizona. I'm curious as to how you view uh, these longer-term demographic shifts. I largely uh, agree with Simon that um, we've certainly seen some areas of Texas become little spots of blue. Um, so certainly the, the three big metropoles um, that you mentioned, uh, and yes, the border areas for sure uh, are, um, are largely um, democratic. And yet what's been very interesting about this, um, um, the growing population is that yes, we have growing population that is migrating from the South, but we also have folks that are migrating to Texas. And what's been very interesting is that the, the few little studies, and I don't exactly know how much faith to put in those studies, show that um, by and large, those who are moving to Texas from other states um, tend to um, drift more conservative. Uh, and so it's kind of an interesting um, balancing act. So we seem to get some conservatives from the rest of the United States moving to Texas, but we also have Hispanic immigration, which is largely democratic. And, you know, uh, very interesting to see uh, what will happen, I think, with Texas over time. And, and I think you could flip a coin. Yeah, it's becoming more purple, but it's currently still a red purple. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> that was really insightful because again, one would, on the surface, assume that someone moving in from California or from Oregon uh, would tend to, to, to trend on the more progressive side of the spectrum. But maybe the reason they're leaving California or Oregon is they're uncomfortable mm -hmm. with the progressive tilt of those states and, and find some solace in Texas. Well, Victoria, I mean, obviously you're looking at this from uh, not from a small town perspective, but 400,000 people in Arlington. Do you want to talk a little bit about the, the changing face of Arlington? Certainly. Uh you know, there's been a lot of activity in North Texas. Obviously, Arlington is right between Dallas and Fort Worth. You know, we were an exurb. We are not anymore. We're a large city between two major cities. We're the 46th largest city in the United States, and we're the seventh most diverse in the United States. We have a high, we have the largest Vietnamese population outside of Houston, and we have, um, yes. So, you know, we, we went through, uh, obviously, People have followed internationally uh, the murder that happened here in the United States in Minneapolis, 
And uh, that led to our city because of the diversity within our city. We had a unity council. We brought together 24 member citizen to talk, to discuss and look at community issues as it related to race, religion, ethnicity, equality, equity, um, and education, healthcare, you name the spectrum, they looked at it. And we came out with the Unity Council report, the National League of Cities here in the United States actually cited it as one of the exemplars um, for the United States cities to, to, uh, to use as a template to go forward. And so there's been a big conversation here about what it looks like. Also, I'll share a little unknown secret to those that are outside of Texas, that Tarrant County, which I am sitting in right now, is the reddest county within Texas. And as Tarrant County goes, Texas goes. So most people are looking at how Tarrant County is in terms of whether Republicans, is, it's a stronghold or not. So it's very a fascinating picture here to look at from a city level. Uh, national politics has creeped down to the city level. I certainly hold a nonpartisan seat. However, I was on a partisan November ballot last fall, which made it much more difficult in terms of the types of conversations that we were having because it started to become the very things we saw the Republicans and Democrats talking about. From a city level, I think we also have to think about redistricting from a city level. How do we take a city that's highly diverse like ours and also ensure diversity inclusion within the city council? And what does that look like? Um, so those are some of the bigger, larger macro questions that you're seeing. I do agree with my colleague, you are seeing a lot more conservatives moving into Texas than you might expect. Also, be careful about the Hispanic Latino community. There's also a Latino mm. and Latino. So you have Hispanics and you have Latinos. So very, very different than you have Latinx movement here. So those are all very much Hispanics tended to lean more democratic. Uh, Latinos tend to be actually picking up steam across the borderlands. You're starting to see Republicans infiltrate to try to take over that vote. Um, George W. Bush was very, very successful in the Republican Party in reaching out to that demographic. So, you know, and don't never forget, Texas in the 1980s was democratic. We had what were called the bow weevils. They were very conservative Democrats that in 1980, Ronald Reagan turned them all into Republicans. And so that is the, the, the history that, that surrounds my city, as well as the state that very much people are playing on the historical factor. It's not just the contemporary politics. So I think it's very important for us to keep those in mind when we, when we think about the demographics of the state and how it's changing, but also what the history tells us about how it will develop and the way in which it will immerse itself. So we want to be careful. Um, you know, there's lots of different regions here, just, to, just like, a, you know, just like Australia is a patchwork quilt of differences. Uh, Texas itself is a patchwork of differences and differences and very much a, a different quilt whether you know when you talk about austin and houston and people like to talk about those centers they're very homogenistic in some senses the way cities act um, we expect them to act but when you start talking about cities like the size of all uh, you know arlington which is highly diverse we've been a majority minority community for 25 years we've been a majority minority community for um almost 30 years in our school districts. So some of the diversity issues that we were bubbling up to the top in Texas, as well as the United States as well as across the world, we've been dealing with here in a microcosm within our city. So there's lots of lessons to be learned at the local level. Well, thank you. That, that nuance is extremely helpful. So with that foundational discussion of, of the demographics of, of, of cities and states there, let's talk about one reason Texas has been very much in the news for the last year. Uh, during the election last fall, there was heavy focus on efforts to restrict early voting. I think uh, I saw the report correctly that you know, Harris County with 5 million people was limited to a single early drop-off box. Uh, and so there is this tension between efforts on the one hand to push voter uh, election integrity uh, as it's framed, and the others who want to frame it more in voters' rights. Texas has been at the forefront of efforts uh, to pass more restrictive legislation in terms of the voting process. Can you give us an update on uh, on where things stand there. Maybe we'll start with you on this, uh, Victoria, then see what Valerie has to add in terms of where, how Texas is dealing with those, that tension there. Well, certainly House Bill 7, which is the it was a House Bill, the State House Bill, uh, which was the Election Integrity Act of 2021. So that, that was the frame, right? Election integrity. It had a myriad of things from, uh, we do have early voting two weeks prior to elections, but there was discussion about um, mail-in ballots and serve signatures. Uh, there were discussions about restricting where drop-off points. Uh, there was restrictions against having any kind of um, prop 
traditionally candidates could send out mail-in ballots to um, encourage voter participation because unlike Australia, we have no compulsory voting. So getting people to turn out is, is, is very much part of what our campaigns focus on. There were restrictions placed on that. And as I alluded to earlier in our discussion, um, the Republicans and Democrats wrangled over this in the, in the state legislature right up to the very last hour in which the Democrats walked off the House floor to prevent it from actually passing and getting to the governor. The governor is going to, as I said before, call a special uh, session starting July 8th. That is going to be the top of the list. And so the query, the question is um, how far and how deep this election integrity issue goes. And as you well framed it, right, on one side, individuals are saying we've got to make sure that our elections are fairly one and people can participate fairly. And on the other side, people, what people see as fair, people see as you're disproportionately affecting those who do not get time off from work, those in the black and brown community who may not be, um, have as much access to this as, as, so you're seeing disproportionate effects. And so um, what seems on the surface is very much a discussion about how elections should occur in the ways and manners, time, place and manner of which they should occur, very much uh, have a racial undertone. And as Simon pointed out earlier as well, has a, an undertone of who controls the state legislature, who controls the city councils, who controls ultimately um, the redistricting effort at the congressional level. And that will create, you know, obviously reverberations, not only in the midterm congressional elections, but also in a presidential in 2024, because Texas has now up for grabs. And Texas certainly is a big prize in the electoral college. Valerie, anything you would add to that? Yeah, well, uh, July 8th is going to be uh, an interesting uh, confluence of things because um, the, the U.S. Supreme Court just came out with a ruling that supports Arizona's attempts uh, to ensure mm -hmm. what they consider to be the integrity of the electoral um, process. Uh, and so that's definitely going to put wind in the sails of those who want to see uh, something similar happen in Texas. So uh, I think the interesting sequence of events there um, uh, may have an influence in, and, and we may well see an Arizona style bill uh, come out of this special session. Simon, um, obviously this didn't start with the 2020 election. Uh, <laughs> you can go back to, to the, you know, what some people would argue is the gutting of the Voter and Rights Act by the, the Roberts Court back in 2013. But we have seen over the last decade now some dramatic shifts in, in uh, particularly in the South, right, in states like Texas on how, how voting is taking place. Can you help us put this in a slightly broader perspective? Oh, sure. Um, you're right, Gordon. I think um, the fight for voting rights um, is a fight and it's, and it's um, not over <laughs> in, in the United States. Um, um, and, and indeed, some people might even say uh, the issues that were exposed and, and you know, lay at the heart of the Civil War um, continue now, what are we, 160 years later, uh, continue to percolate away and uh, are tremendous drivers of um, what we see on the surface of American politics. Um, um, the way that um, race and demography map onto political preference in the United States. We don't see anything like that uh, in Australia, uh, for instance. Um, the way that um, the white vote um, is, is, um, is a, you know, whites constitute nationwide about a 60-40 um, uh, Republican-Democrat constituency and have been so since the Voting Rights Act was made law uh, in, in, in the mid-1960s. Uh, uh, the last time um, a Democratic presidential candidate won um, a majority uh, of the white vote was Lyndon Johnson um, in 1964. Um, and and that, that mapping of race into the mainstream, frankly, into the mainstream, into the big question of what side of politics you tend to line up on, um, non-white people in the United States uh, are rough on average, uh, and it's it's never static. And but but largely, it's that's about a, an 80-20 proposition, um, Democrat Republican, and 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 the white electorate is is 
again, national figures, uh, as I said, on average, about 60-40. And a lot of the play, frankly, in American politics is about um, how one responds to demographic change as the white proportion of the electorate changes through population change, demographic change, um, how that maps onto politics, what sort of appeals um, do, do um, the parties make to their constituencies, number one. And back to your question, Gordon, how do you use whatever control you might have over the election machinery itself um, to, to offset um, things that are beyond your control, such as the way that your party's message might not be resonating um, with that part of the electorate um, that is growing in size in the, in the case of Republicans pretty much everywhere. Um, but again, this gets back to why Texas is so fascinating because it is so diverse um, um, demographically, number one. It is so big um, uh, quantitatively. Um, the idea that it is up for grabs, that was a, um, a real interesting uh, observation by Victoria. Um, Democrats, um, is it going to be this cycle? Is it going to be, Texas has been the one that, that tends to um, uh, elude them. Um, but is 24 um, going to be uh, the cycle that puts it? And, and the thing about the presidential race is that that sits above redistricting, right? That's a statewide contest. So although all the stuff we're talking about redistricting affects the composition of the state legislature and the congressional delegation, it's really that manipulation of who gets access to the ballot um, that, that, that has more control over Texas's um, where it may go on the margin. And, and we're talking about as the state gets more competitive through demographic change, that one or two or three percent that you might be able to affect through manipulation of ac access to the ballot becomes all that more critical. Um, and so it is ground zero um, in, in many respects for those of us who are invested in this professionally, but perhaps not just professionally, either by dint of your politics or by dint of your, of your interest in, in, in democracy. Um, Texas um, is, a, is a fascinating, fascinating case study. Uh, this tension between what's happening in, in local areas in particular versus the ability nonetheless of the state. And so I, I don't understand this. I think it's a, it's a live question, frankly, in American political science right now. Um, who is moving to Texas and why? How is it that, that um, um, the non-white uh, electorate um, in, in, in Texas hasn't gone and, and taken the state uh, as quickly or as rapidly as that, if you had that same level of demographic change in other parts of the United States, you'd probably see the politics of the place statewide, at least changing a little more quickly. We don't understand that particularly well, frankly, um, uh, but there's, it, it's, um, it's a remarkable, and then we get to the policy consequences, Gordon. We haven't really talked about that much, but, but, but state governments have make an awful lot of policy Right, and we all know that, but I think it's worth pointing out for listeners on the call, incarceration, criminal justice, um, uh, where money goes um, 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 uh, for schools, um, uh, awful lot about, about transport and infrastructure and, and those that rubber meets the road and, and why someone like Victoria is probably attracted to, to local government. Um, you, you are making a real difference to people's lives with the decisions that come out of, of state legislatures um, and, and hence the, the way that that manipulation of electoral procedure maps into real changes in people's lives. Um, um, we're talking a lot of people in the case of Texas too. And so that makes it just an, another reason that I think it makes it such a compelling case study uh, for those of us with an interest in these matters for whatever motivation and reason. Wonderfully expressed, thank you. Um, one of our online uh, uh, participants have sent a question through. Maybe Victoria might uh, take a stab at it, others can clarify. Uh, from an Australian perspective, the distinction between Hispanic, Latino, and Latinx is, is kind of hard to understand. Is there a, mm. a, a shorthand that would help people here understand what that, that is? I think we utilize, uh, in Texas, uh, there's been a lot of, traditionally in California, Latino, Latina, so coming at not necessarily Mexican in descent, but coming from Latin American countries. 
Um, traditionally in Texas, people were called Hispanic because mostly it was referring to our migrant or immigrants from coming from Mexico. Um, certainly now you're seeing more of a demographic flow coming from Central America and on up. So there, there really is a discussion now that it's not, it, we are having a Latino Latina. Now, the last part, the Latinx, is now um, what you're seeing a younger demographic, you say your millennial generation or Gen Z generation, who very much want to stand up and speak on behalf of and be a po vocal part of politics. So have placed the X after them as a sense of we are the X factor. In other words, Latinos, not African-Americans or Blacks or others, but Latinos or um, not Hispanics, but Latinos will be the real game changer in terms of the politics here in Texas. And hey, pay attention to us as a demographic because as we go, the politics of the state will go. So that's what I was really referring to. And I know it seems very foreign to use these types of very parochial types of words, but they have, I've used them for a reason on tonight's discussion because I wanted people to understand they are loaded terms that very much are signaling, you know, the types of arguments that are being had and the subtlety of the political arguments that Simon was referring to. Oh, uh, thanks. Uh, I want to turn now to foreign policy and borders and maybe we'll go back to you again, Valerie, in this front. Um, Texas has been very much in the news for the last several weeks. Uh, one, because of the decision of, of uh, Vice President Kamala Harris to, to visit the border. Uh, and then just yesterday, I believe it was, uh, the reciprocal visit of former President Donald Trump. Uh, and interestingly, and this kind of goes back to, to your national security wheelhouse, a really bizarre decision by the governor of, of North Dakota, uh, Christy Noem, I believe her name is, to send mm -hmm. members of the, the North Dakota National Guard, funded apparently by a rich billionaire donor, down to the border to help with the immigration crisis. Can you kind of walk our viewers through these issues and, and Texas's role in them? I have no idea what Texas uh, did to uh, induce Governor Noam to send those National Guard troops. But the fact that this is donor funded and the donor isn't even from North Dakota uh, is really wrong. <laughs> You know, if there is some sort of, uh, you know, uh, something that I know the Department of Defense is already looking into, you know, the legalities here. And I know that uh, congressmen and senators are both um, looking to see if there's some legislation that, you know, if this is legal, this can be plugged. But yes, it's only 50, but still, what a strange and disturbing um, precedent it would be that a donor can induce a governor to send troops to another state. Very strange. Now, you're, you're right that um, this, is a, this is a big signaling issue, um, you know, uh, in Texas politics. So uh, we now have $250 million that the governor has allocated towards building his own version of the wall. I don't know how many miles of wall $250 million will buy, but we've got 1,254 miles of border uh, Texas has with Mexico. So I, I, I can't imagine that this would be a drop in the bucket. And as such, it, it seems to be more symbolic than anything. But more importantly is something that you did not mention, which is the um, declaration of a disaster by um, Governor Abbott. Uh, and this has some very interesting um, sequelae. Uh, so for example, because he's declared a disaster, he has now ordered the shutdown of the facilities that would house uh, migrant children. Uh, and as a result, uh, those 52 facilities are due to be shut down uh, in August. And that represents 25% of all facilities uh, that uh, our immigration services have with which to house migrant children. Uh, and so this is a real shot across the bow in, in uh, terms of the federal government. So certainly I think uh, Texas, or at least um, you know, the Republican party that is so uh, dominant in Texas politics has made it clear 
um, that they are going to protect state interests, even if that means uh, going toe-to-toe -toe, uh, with, with the feds on this. And, and there's a number of other things, such as sanctuary cities and blah, 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 that are, um, I think, part and parcel of this showdown between Texas and D.C., that I think all political observers should definitely be keeping their eye on. Well, our, our faithful webinar participants have reminded me that I've slandered the good people of North Dakota. It's actually South Dakota. And so I need to make that clear distinction there in terms of the process. Uh, uh, Victoria or Simon, any observations you might have on, obviously this is a, a, a role for Vice President Harris, which is fraught with danger. Um, uh, and it is one of those issues that is not new, right? Um, I understand that the, the former president's most recent chant isn't build the wall, but paint the wall, because he's concerned that it was rusted and not painted. But you know, things, things seem to be shifting there on that front. Any other observations you'd add? Maybe we'll start with you, Simon. Um, I, I, not really, uh, Gordon. Um, I guess the thing about the board, I'm I just going to bring it back to domestic politics. Um, and, and wondering, again, one of the things we don't understand very well, I think, as a profession, is, is the, how, how well Trump did um, in um, the Rio Grande Valley uh, counties, um, or as you guys look at it, that way, <laughs> um, um, that, down on the southern border, the land border, uh, with, 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 with Texas that runs along the, the Rio Grande um, River there. Um, it's the politics of this um, uh, uh, are interesting and, and, and fraught. And, and for English speaking scholars, um, sometimes at a, at a distance, um, 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 the, the tools available to us to study on the ground politics from, from afar, from be it Stanford, California or Sydney, Australia, um, um, being able to get back to the United States after COVID and, and or rely on our colleagues who were there. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the, the two-edged nature of, of, of the politics because it does mirror sort of a politics around uh, tough border policy here in Australia, um, that, it, that it polarizes. There's a bunch of people who see um, really tough uh, border policy as, as punitive, as, as um, as being delivering very um, harsh treatment from the state, from the nation state, to, to people in wretched conditions who are, who are desperate to try and improve the lot of themselves and their families versus um, arguments around, around sovereignty um, that, that one of the functions zero for a nation state is, to, is its territoriality and control of its border, number one, and number two, um, that you know, all, all the other stuff that follows from, from um, unauthorised immigration, the, the burden on social services, um, uh, crimi you know, uh, rises in crime or, 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 or uh, the threat thereof. Um, so, so the politics of this, um, I think we need to acknowledge um, two ways. Um, um, and, and hence, that's partly why... Um, this issue has as much oxygen underneath it as it does because it's, it's, a, it's a very intense issue and mobilizes votes on, on both sides of politics you know, uh, in the United States, quite irrespective of the policy or ethical or normative moral um, character of, of the policy and the debate around it. Well, if I might, if I yeah, might add. Victoria, can I frame it a little bit specifically for sure. you? So Valerie and Simon have both made the case that nominally, you know, borders are a national government issue. They've bled into the state level right now, but I presume uh, both as a scholar and, and from a city perspective, these are issues you wrestle with as well. Absolutely. I was just gonna say, you know, as the former House, United States House Speaker, Tip O'Neill said, all politics is local. So I, I want us to bring us back down to pra practical politics in the sense of framing this in two different ways. One, we have a governor who is up for reelection next year, who is running very poorly in his own base of the Republican Party, who frankly, the base of the Republican Party, at least in, in some of the major areas here in Texas, are driven by those who are very favorable to Trump. Trump is running around 80% in most polls in terms of Republican leaning base. So you have, 
you know, and this is, is historically Texas has taken on the national government. Uh, I mean, our, our uh, attorney general has sued the United States government more than any other state combined. So, I mean, this is, this is something that the Lone Star State, don't tread on me, is very classically for it. But I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that, you know, domestic politics is driving this. Now, one of the things the Republican Party, a governor who may have difficulty with his own base, how does he sure up the base? He knows his base is very supportive of Trump, very supportive of the border policy previously. What does he do? Well, you start rallying around that issue and suddenly now that becomes the state legislature is not talking as much about taking away his gubernatorial powers and now are talking about how they should support him in this initiative and effort. So he's changed the dialogue as, as you know, our, my colleague pointed out, you know, this synchronicity of these events and the timing of these events are very critical in the backdrop of what also is occurring in the domestic realm as well. So, you know, oftentimes, you know, a border state uses those international types of issues or federal issues to make those to the advantage for the party here. So if this governor is, is successful in utilizing and framing the border issue as a state control issue vis-a-vis -vis the federal government. Again, that bolsters the Republican base nationally because again, what is it? The Republican party driven by the idea that the state's federalism, right? The states should be the local of power. So locus of power. All the while, ironically, speaking from a city perspective, the state legislature is taking more and more local control away from its own cities. So just to layer on all the different pieces and parts to this puzzle, just to make it even more interesting. Well, your, um, your reference to the governor's race, and it leads me to break out my, all right, all right, all right. You know, the, if, if Matthew McConaughey actually runs for governor, there will be intense interest globally on the Texas uh, political scene. Hey, um, I realize that none of us are engineers, but I want to turn lastly to, to energy regulation kind of issues. Because again, uh, from an Australian or a global perspective, one of the areas where Texas made the news globally uh, was in February this year when there was a massive uh, power outage uh, because of the failure of what is an independent Texas grid, uh, which kind of shocked a lot of people. Again, that plus the Senator Ted Cruz is fleeing to Cancun and then coming back, got a lot of attention. And then you add on top of that, uh, just recently, um, the, high, the cyber hacking uh, of the colonial pipeline you know, from Houston to the rest of the world that led to massive gas shortages in the East Coast. Can, can either of you tell us a little bit about what these issues says about Texas, its integration to the U.S., questions of regulation, uh, which might be a little bit harder for an Australian audience to understand. Valerie, might we start with you. I know those are not your, your bread and butter, but uh, your views would be welcome. Well, this is not my wheelhouse, so I'd be perfectly blunt. But as someone who lives in Texas, I've been, of course, very, very keenly interested in understanding how the Texas power grid is, is regulated and what's being done in the wake of this disaster. And of course, the Texas state legislature was in session and we all expected something really meaningful uh, to come from that. And there was a bill mm -hmm. which has mandated updating uh, of, the, of the power grid, but provides no timeline and sets no standards. And so as a result, um, I think a lot of us who live in Texas are very disappointed. Uh, and we wonder what will actually get done. And this is not just about power, but it's about all the big issues in Texas. So for example, the uh, continual flooding of Houston, right? And all the many plans there have been for staving off such things in the future and how those never happen, right? The most important big things that Texas state government could be doing seem not ever to get tackled in an effective manner. Uh, and, and this is, I think, really disturbing to the citizens of Texas. Victoria? I was, I was gonna say, you know, certainly I agree. We all kind of hoped, well, that the state legislature would step up and, and they made a lot of noise about wanting to do something to shore up our electrical grid. Certainly, you know, it has been a point of hubris for Texans to be able to say we have our own grid. So years ago when the East Coast went down, we said, well, we have our own, it'll never happen here. Well, it has happened. 
Um, and certainly the bill is, is insufficient. It doesn't provide funding. It doesn't provide any of the things that my colleague pointed out. You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, we talk about fracking. Fracking obviously was an issue in Australia and you've been dealing with that for, you know, obviously in much different ways than we have here in Texas, you know, Arlington, Texas sits right on top of the Barnett shale. In fact, the most richest part of it sits under my city that I represent. And, you know, we have, um, the state legislature decided to pass a law, uh, pass a bill, HB 40. It's a uh, synonymous, look it up. Uh, basically it says that, um, local governments cannot control or interfere with business operations of gas companies within our contiguous other than when it, it other than noise, uh, dust, and traffic issues. So, um, you know, with setbacks and talking about nearness to our neighborhoods, you know, and what we knew 20 years ago versus what we know now about the health and safety and environmental issues. So, you know, whether it's the electric grid or it's even, you know, in terms of um, the pride of, of Texas of being the natural gas area, you know, there's, there's all those differences. And, you know, here I am as a city council member who has asked just as recently as Tuesday during a city council meeting to cite a, a, a you know, a new housing um, area right next to a gas well, you know, and I was left with, do I allow for redevelopment and, you know, re, re um, rehabilitation of a, a part of our city that really desperately needs it? Or do I, you know, how do I balance that vis-a-vis -vis an old well that's sitting there that may or may not be within 300 to 600 feet setback? Um, and knowing full well that my hands are tied because the state legislature has decided that yeah, local right. governments have to deal with the consequences of it, but do not have an ability to really control the outcome of it. So it is very entangling when you start to look at these issues from different levels and different perspectives. Look, we're, we're close to running out of time. Um, they're not unique entirely to the United States. I recall earlier this year, I, I toured the snowy hydro power scheme down south of Canberra, a place called Mura, and was struck with all the destructions about the, the national grid and the national scheme in Australia, none of which involved the state where I live in Western Australia, which is kind of outside the national grid, uh, although probably not as subject to the same types of weather events uh, that, that Texas experienced and will experience. Uh, Simon, uh, any final observations from you before we come to the end of the hour here? Oh, oh look, um, I'm just delighted to have spent some time hearing from, from folks on the ground in a fascinating part of the world. Um, the power thing was an interesting place to end, Gordon. Um, uh, Texas um, is sort of a little bit further down the pathway than the, certainly the East Coast grid here in Australia in that there's so much gas in the grid um, that, um, and gas produces per unit of electricity generated, produces um, about half the CO2 emissions uh, as you would get from burning coal. Uh, and for that reason, um, Texas, which a lot of, um, I think, urban dwelling Australians think of the wild west um, and, and, and hear a lot of those sorts of stories about, about Texas, actually uh, uh, cleans our clock um, with respect to its, its, um, its clean energy credentials, at least, if only because it's burning more gas, uh, whereas the Australian grid is, is still, the East Coast energy grid is about on, you know, um, never below about 60 to 70% uh, uh, coal-fired um, power. Um, and so, um, Texas leads Australia in terms of uh, CO2 emissions per gigawatt hour of electricity, if you will, if you wanted a metric like that. It's a really interesting case study. Plus also a ton of wind, a huge amount of wind in, in the Texas grid as well. That posed some vulnerabilities as the, um, as the winter event revealed, but also prompted me to take a really, do a, a pretty deep dive on it. Sort of those, those reliability issues issues around dispatchable power um, um, that come with renewals and how gas has played a really important part of the mix in, in Texas in firming up um, supply, adverse winter events notwithstanding, but just in the ordinary course of events, the role that gas plays, particularly in the evening and overnight hours when the wind might die down and the, and the, and the sun's gone. Um, to some extent, it's actually pointing, I think, a way forward where Australia is going to go have a, have a similar looking energy mix as coal phases out, gas will fill 
sort of a, a bit of a missing part of the market for a while until renewable batteries and whatnot come on together. But our, our geographic endowments are very similar, a ton of land, a ton of sunshine and, and a ton of natural resource under the ground. So it's another interesting place uh, to compare the two, the two countries and, and many Australian jurisdictions uh, you know, with Texas. So it was, a, it was a great place to end the conversation, Gordon. Well, thank you, Simon. As somebody who was born in New Mexico and raised in Arizona, through most of my childhood, we looked at Texas with the equal measures of fear and admiration. Um, <laughs> it's been nice to be in Western Australia for the last almost eight years, where I can welcome Texans from that nice small state that is about, you know, WA is about 3.7 times larger than Texas, although the truth is we've only got about 10% of their population, so you can weigh that however you will. Uh, but anyone who's joining this conversation today, I think will will walk away uh, with a much more nuanced understanding of the issues that Texas faces, and through that prism, with a much more nuanced understanding of the many issues that are that are impacting the United States nationally. So, on behalf of of the Perth U.S. Asia Center and the United States Studies Center, uh, thank you so much, uh, Victoria and Valerie, for making time in your evening. Uh, to share your insights with, uh, with our community here uh, in Australia and throughout the Indo-Pacific.